We are in the book of First John. That's towards the end of the New Testament in a series of fairly short little letters. It's easy to flip past. It's really close to the end of the book. And we are in chapter 3, towards the end of it. We've been working our way slowly through the book of First John, and we'll be in this book until June. We're kind of crossing the midpoint right now, and we're starting in verse 19 today. 19 through 24 is our sermon text, so let's read it together and then hear what God's Word has to say to us this morning. This is the Word of God. 1 John three nineteen. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God, and whatever we ask, we receive from him, because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God, and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us, by the Spirit whom he has given us. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we have learned already in this, your text, that we are to walk just as Jesus walks if we say that we know you and we believe in your Son. We have just sung about the tender, loving heart of Jesus Christ for sinners. I pray that you would use this text this morning and this book among us to make us like him. Keeping, holding, loving, comforting, running toward people who need help rejoicing with people as they rejoice. I pray that we would be each other's first responders in life, that you would use this text to shape us into a love-one-another community that shows what Jesus is like in the way we treat each other. Help us to be a friend for sinners as well. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. I like reading. I'm always reading three or four or five or six books at the same time in different categories. I usually at night read a fiction book that has nothing to do with the rest of life just to help me go to sleep. And I recently finished Ray Bradbury's Fahrenheit 451. I've never read it before. Maybe you have. It's a classic sci-fi book. And I ended up really enjoying it. It is worth reading. Bradbury wrote it back in 1953. 1953, which was more than just a couple years ago, he wrote it and he created a fictional sci-fi world to write a message or a book against totalitarian censorship. So it's similar to like 1984. It's sort of a similar kind of thing. But in his world, he was warning against the dumbing and the numbing of people and of civilization in general that would come if books were made illegal. If books were made illegal. That's the premise of Fahrenheit 451. And the reason it's named that is that the, that is the temperature at which paper burns. 451 degrees Fahrenheit. In a, book where, in a world where books have been made illegal. So in that future world that Bradbury creates in his book, the only input that anyone has that shapes their worldview and their daily life and influences what they think and what they do. Now, you need to follow me closely. The only input they get comes from electronic devices that are pretty much screens that are with people all the time. In fact, they build their houses and have screens on all four walls so they can always see one wherever they are in their home. 
and they spend almost all of their time staring at these screens and listening to whatever the screens tell them to provide 24-7 entertainment. Right? There's no real content like thoughtful, substantive, make-you-do-anything-useful content that comes through the screens. Just 24-7 noise and silly videos. And if Bradbury had known what cat videos were, that's probably what they would have been watching. And some of the screens are even interactive. They have cameras on them so that you can actually go back and forth with the people on the screen. And what ends up happening in the community that he creates there, the screens are called by the people in the book, family. This is my, not the people around me, not the flesh and blood people, the people on the screens. They're my virtual community, though he didn't know that phrase. They're my family, not these people. Does that sound remotely familiar to you? Like a world that you've ever been a part of or seen or thought about? And that was like 60, 70 years ago. It's a pretty good book. I recommend you read it. It's, going to be, it's talking actually about the same kind of world that our Christian formation class for the next six weeks is going to be talking about. Twelve ways your phone is changing you. So what happens then in Bradbury's world, in this sci-fi book, Fahrenheit 451? How do you preserve civilization? How do you keep shaping people to be something other than numbed, screen-numbed and screen-dumbed robots, sycophants, in a world where even possessing a book, even if you haven't read it, even owning a book will send you to jail or get you killed? It could be a capital offense to possess a book. What do you do? And I'm not going to give away the entire plot, but I'm going to give away one plot point. Because here's what happens in his book. People become the books. People become the books. They memorize them, the whole thing. They internalize them so that they know it frontwards and backwards, and then they start to live like the books. So the characters in the book he wrote are books. That's how you preserve civilization and shape people in a world where you can't have a book. People become the books. Even the main character, right, who's a fireman, and in his world, firemen don't put out fires, they start them. Right? They're the people who respond to the emergency of someone having a book to come burn your house down. That's what he does for a living, the main character. Even he becomes a book as you read through the text of 451. And if you're reading really carefully and paying attention to the way the novel is shaped, I think you'll recognize the book that the main character becomes by the end of the story. That's another way of looking at what First John is trying to teach us. How do you know? Remember the title phrase for the book, by this we know. How do you know that you've heard and believed the apostles' message that they heard and saw and looked at and touched like our confessional texts talk about? He came back from the dead. We saw it. How do you know that you've believed that message? Another way to put what First John is teaching us is by this we know when we become the book. That's how we know. By this we know that we have the truth when we're doing what Scripture teaches. When we look at the long view of life, not the individual pictures, which may be failure or success, but the video, right? The long-term, ongoing, habitual, ordinary, everyday life that we live and we see us, see us looking more and more like Jesus Christ, more and more like the book all the time. That's evidence of the 
presence of the Holy Spirit and the work of the Holy Spirit. Because becoming the book is not something you can do on your own. It's evidence that God is abiding with you and you with him. So I want to take a little trip through 1 John this morning and what we've covered so far. All of the texts of 1 John require us becoming the book in one way or another. And all of these texts require the presence and the work of the Holy Spirit for that to happen because you can't do it on your own. None of it happens without the Spirit of God resident and present in the child of God as that person is part of the community of the church. So remember what we learned in Deeper, for instance. A couple of weeks ago, the, the book that we've just finished in Christian Formation about real change for real sinners. At the end of that book, a couple of weeks ago, as we concluded, Ray Ortland, or Dane Ortland, sorry, not his dad, the son. Dane Ortland said, everything said thus far in the book, how you become more like Jesus and more like the book, everything said so far in this book would remain purely abstract without the Spirit. It would be all fine theory and nothing more. The Spirit gives life. He turns doctrine into power. By the Holy Spirit, that's how we become the book of 1 John. You might have noticed that in the very last line of the very last verse in our text today. So I want to read a little bit about what this looks like as a way to remember where we've been so far. So here's how we become like the book. Let me give you just some snapshots. 1 John 1, verse 5. This, I think, is the theological header for the whole book. This is the message we've heard from him and proclaimed to you. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. Chapter 1, verse 7. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. Become the book. He's light. There's no darkness. Keep going. Chapter 2, verse 3. By this we know. We've come to know him if we keep his commands. Become the book. Verse 10 of chapter 2. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and there's no cause in him for stumbling. Verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. Verses 24 and 25, if what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise he made to us, eternal life. So children, become the book. Chapter 3, verses 2 and 3, right after he says, Behold, the love God has given us. We are God's children, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Become the book. Verses 9 and 10 of chapter 3. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him. He can't keep on sinning because he's been born of God. By this we know who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Who does not, whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Become the book. Do you hear that? It's threading its way through the whole thing. In verse 18, our, the end of our text from last week, little children, let us not love just with words and tongue. Let us love with actions and in truth. Become the book. All of those things describe what Fahrenheit 451 is talking about as the answer to totalitarian government and censorship 
of books when the government makes owning them and reading them illegal and wants to control all of its citizens through screen-based 24-7 entertainment propaganda that makes you dumb and numb. If you have the spirit, becoming the book is what will be normal, everyday, ordinary life, one step to the right at a time as you live in Christ. So our text this morning, I think, is particularly hinging on the end of last week. So look again at verse 18 of chapter 3. Little children, let us not love in word or tongue or talk, but in deeds and in truth. So here's how I think the structure of this works. This might help you a little bit. Remember how 1 John goes together, because the structure sometimes seems a little obscure to me. I think this chapter is working like a pull-down menu. I'm going to ironically use a technology analogy, like a pull-down menu on your screen or your phone. You know, where you click one menu choice, and you get more options, and you click another one, and then you get more options. That, that's like when you're ordering a pizza, right? Super extra big. Okay, crust. Deep dish. Sauce. Twice as much. Cheese. Two pounds. You know, when you're, when you're ordering a pizza and you keep getting more choices? I think that's how chapter 3 works. So I want you to watch this. Look at verse 10 of chapter 3. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. That's the end of one section. Then look at verses 11 through 18. There are a drop-down menu that fills out more content of what does that look like based on the Cain and Abel brother relationship that we looked at last week. Now look at the end of last week's text in verse 18. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. And now this week's text kind of clicks down more on that. It's a pull-down that gives us more content. Here's what loving in deed and truth looks like. It's fleshing that out a little bit more. And actually, the last line of our verse this week goes to the next line of the first verse next week. Did I say that right? Next and last? Anyway, you know what I mean. This week's text goes to the next chapter in 1 John 4, which we'll actually cover in May because we have a couple of weeks of guest pastors after this. So this chapter, I think, is building, or this passage is building right off of verse 18 to help us understand more what it means. So I think there are three short sections. The sermon text follows the text of Scripture, you can see the outline in your bulletin. We have the love litmus test in verses 19 and 20. We have the confidence challenge in 20 and 21, and the abiding acts in 23 and 24. So we're going to look at each of those in turn. We're going to start with the love litmus test. This is verses 19 and 20 of our text this morning, which again says, By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. And he knows everything. Right there you can see the hinge point, how it pulls down from the next one. By this we will know. Did you catch that? That's different than the way it usually says that. That's future tense. By this we will know. And what's the by this? It's what it just said in the previous verse or verses 16 through 18 especially. By this, we know what love is. Jesus laid down his life for us, so we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. If we see, see, here's another one of those if-thens. If we see a fellow Christian, a brother or sister in need, but we do not have mercy on them, we're not stirred to compassion that leads to action, then how is it that Christ's love can be in us? Those things don't go together. 
How can you see someone in need and not be stirred to do something about it? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. By this we'll know that we're in the truth, loving others with deeds and action and in truth, and not seeking what's best for us, but what glorifies God and is what is good for our neighbor. Remember last week? Ministry of word, ministry of deed, ministry of word, ministry of deed, right? The church does bodybuilding with both arms. You don't just build up one. When you're doing curls, you do both. Ministry of word, ministry of deed, ministry of word, ministry of deed, over and over and over again. So I want you to follow carefully then the argument that these two verses are making. Here it is. Love in deed and in truth in the present is the future basis for assurance of salvation. We will know that we are of the truth. We will know that we have the Spirit at work in us, especially in mercy ministry of deeds, in hindsight, as we look back on a life of sanctification. So if you're wondering now, am I really, do I really believe this? Am I really a Christian? Have I really been saved? If you're wrestling with the assurance of salvation, this text is saying you can look back on your life and see how the Spirit has been at work in the past. That's often the clearest place to see things for humans, right? In hindsight. We're not very good at foresight, and we're fairly terrible at present sight. But hindsight, we do okay. So look back and see how you can see the Spirit at work in your love and your deeds for other people. And that's assurance of salvation. So you will know. And so the loving deeds that you're doing now, loving in deed and in truth, will be assurance of your salvation later. So you will know. That's the argument it's making. Does that make sense? When you're wrestling with assurance of salvation, look back here and see if you see the Spirit at work consistently over time in the video of your life. So you will know. So be and make disciples. Become the book. And next year, when you're wrestling, you can look back on this year and say, no, no, the Holy Spirit was there. And since the Holy Spirit never leaves where he takes up residence, no, I'm still, I'll, I'll keep walking. By this you will know. Hindsight's helpful, apparently, in the Christian walk. But if you're like me, when you look backwards and when you look around at the life you're living right now, you're much more probably prone to see your failures. I certainly am. I'm very good at noticing them. I'm not so good at noticing successes when the Spirit's really doing something useful. And instead of giving thanks for the Spirit's work in and through you, when you look back, you just see all the missed chances, right? The mishandled words, I could have done, I should have said, why didn't I? I've missed it. That's the second part of this passage of the love litmus test. Comforting the heart of the Christian who has been trying to love and wants to love and works to love in deed and in truth, but just doesn't do so perfectly. In other words, comforting me and you. Because that's us. When our hearts, I would say rightly, condemn us for our own lack of love for others, for our selfishness, for our unwillingness to be on the first truck out of the station, to sacrifice, to love others as ourselves. God is greater than the condemnation of our heart that says, no, I don't think you're actually a believer. Look at, what a, look, at, look at what you just did. Look at the chance you just missed. Look at what you just passed up. God knows the true state of things. He knows our failures and our faith, and we can trust in his word about us. 
we remember it's not our deeds that save us. Right? 1 John chapter 2. Jesus Christ is propitiation. Jesus Christ is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And Jesus Christ is the court-appointed advocate. He's the defense attorney that God has given us to argue our case before God when we fail in sin by his blood. And his blood covers our sins, not our actions. The criteria for the reality of the profession of Christian faith in these three tests 1 John uses, theology test, social test, moral test, right? This is social test this morning. We pass those tests not by our deeds, but by the work of the Spirit who applies the Word of God and empowers it in the deeds that are done in truth. So we're looking to the cross of Christ. And when our hearts condemn us for our failures, we look there again because we have an advocate before the Father who's who pleads his blood, and the Father says, not guilty, not guilty, not guilty. And you get up and you dust yourself off, and you keep walking. Because like C.S. Lewis says, I think it was at the end of Deeper he was quoted, the failure in Christian life is not the falling down. It's the refusal to get up again. You just get up again and put your eyes back on on the cross and keep following Jesus. When your hearts condemn you, God is greater in the blood of Christ, if you are in him and he is your Lord and Savior, covers your sin. That's a sign of regeneration. Being aware that you've sinned and repenting and coming to the cross. So that's one part of what loving in deed and in truth looks like. Now we've got another part in the next two verses, the confidence challenge. This is more of This is the other side of when we're actually having confidence because we're getting to enjoy living out our faith well. By this we will know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts when we actually do verse 18 of chapter 3. So verses 21 and 22, the confidence challenge. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. Are you guys familiar with the Babylon Bee? If you are familiar with the Babylon Bee, then you understand my sense of humor a little bit better. Right? It's a satire website. I believe their tagline is, Fake News You Can Trust. That's the Babylon Bee. They use humor and satire to from a Christian perspective, to poke fun both at the world and at us. And I think they do an exceptionally good job. And I often say that I aspire to be a sort of an extra columnist for them. I would love to write some extra articles for them on the side. I think that would be tremendously entertaining. Because they use Star Wars and Lord of the Rings all the time in their analogies, and I, I, I can do that. So if I was going to write an article for the Babylon Bee that relates to this text, I think this is what I would do. Here's my sarcastic contribution to fake news you can trust. In recent years, with the proliferation of evangelical churches that are a mile wide in scope and an inch deep in theology and Christian living, a group of concerned Christians has now started a new abuse ministry named All Things. All Things is a recovery ministry focused on a new wave of abuse victims making their way out of churches that have succumbed to the evangelical entertainment industry. All Things is a ministry for abused Bible verses. Abused Bible verses that have been violently ripped out of their original context and forced to say things they were never meant to say. And there are more of them all of the time. 
going through our all things ministry, recovering their true biblical meaning in the healing context of expository preaching and responsible Bible study. And as we interviewed the leader of all things, he told us, we know that a verse is ready to graduate from our program and be included back into the normal life of the church when Christians actually start to do what it actually means. And the reason this new ministry is named All Things is that one of the most abused verses in the entire Bible, I think, is Philippians 4.13, which says, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Really? You can do all things through Christ? Are you faster than a speeding bullet and more powerful than a locomotive? And you're able to leap tall buildings in a single bound in Christ? Super Christian! Is that what that verse means? No! That is not what it means at all. It's a powerful sentence, and it stands inside of a context that grounds and bounds its meaning. Paul is talking about something very specific when he says everything are all things in the context of Philippians 4. So if you want to know what 4.13 means, you have to read the rest of the chapter. And fortunately for this particular verse, when we do our presbytery pulpit swap in two weeks, Pastor Chris Harper from Trinity in Rochester is going to deal with that text and explain to us what that verse actually means. But for us, we want to focus on this text because it has another verse that's gone through the All Things Verse Abuse Therapy Program. Just as the Holy Spirit is not a divine power source that you can literally do anything you want to with it, You need to be careful with this. Whatever we ask, we receive from him. Because we keep his commandments and do what he is pleased by. The Holy Spirit is not a divine power source that lets you do anything you want. He is also not a divine magic wand that you can wave around and get anything you want if you just have the right incantation to perform. That is not how the Spirit works to paraphrase Han Solo. Context. Context. This text seems to be the flip side of the coin, relating to loving in deed and in truth. That's what's going on here. When we do love in deed and in truth, now follow the argument, when we do love in deed and in truth, we can have confidence before God. Not because our deeds save us, but because we don't have to wonder about assurance of salvation. Because we can see the proof of it in everyday life. The Spirit's at work. Because I'm doing love. I'm doing, I'm loving my brother in deed and in truth. So if we're depending on context and what's going on here, in the whatever we ask he gives us or we receive, what we're asking for and requesting of God specifically is helping our brother or sister in Christ, with whatever need they have that we're engaged in at the moment in mercy ministry, right? If our heart doesn't condemn us, it's because we're actually doing what this text says. We're laying down our lives for our brothers or sisters, and if we're doing that, then we're praying for them what they need, and we're asking for the help of the Spirit to do the ministry that's in front of us, and God says, yes, that's exactly what I want you doing. Ask for help from them. Ask for help for yourself to help them. Prayer answered. Let's go. That's the context. And so what it's basically saying is, don't even try to do this on your own. Don't try this at home, children, right? Don't, you can't. You can't do this kind of love another, one another work on your own. You have to ask for help. And when you do, you will get it. 
Trust the word of God. When you ask, he hears you. And we receive from him because we're, see how it, see how it depends on that then? Because we keep his commandments. Not that our keeping of commandments obligates God to do something as though it's an incantation for a magic wand. It's because we're already inside of his will doing what he's asked us to do. And he piles right onto that when we ask for help. That's exactly what I want you to do. Thank you for asking. Let's go. That's what this is saying. You can be confident God will help you and answer your prayer and empower you through his spirit to do this otherwise impossible kind of life that we see in verse 18 of chapter 3. The main idea then is God calls upon us to love sacrificially as Jesus has loved us. Remember the hymn we just sang. To give up our lives to meet the needs of other people. But just like he does with Jesus, God is not leaving us all by ourselves in this. Jesus Christ had the presence of the spirit with him. His entire earthly ministry. Guess what? So do you. I'm going away, and I'm sending you another counselor. He'll illumine the word. He'll shine the spotlight on me, and he will give you the will and the strength to work out your salvation. So ask for help, and know that you will receive it, not because our obedience obligates God to reward us, but because the receiving depends on our asking, which itself is actually part of obeying the love command. The Spirit empowers the word into deed in accordance with what the word says. That's the way that works. The Spirit empowers the word into deed in accordance with what the word says. That's keeping God's commands, and that pleases your Father. And who doesn't want to do that? So that means, you remember the first responder kit we were putting together? We were getting rid of the dirty diaper bag? and filling it with first responder items last week, that means it needs to have some sort of something in it that's a cushion so you can be on your knees a lot as a first responder when you have something because the floor hurts. I have a bad knee and it hurts, my, it hurts the floor. So I, my, it hurts the floor when I... You know what I mean. I can't even get it to come out my mouth now. You need a cushion in your first responder kit so you can be in prayer for the people you're trying to help over and over and over and you don't get tired of doing it. So here's a story that I think goes with that in John 8. Jesus has started a conversation with a crowd in John 8. And he's also dialoguing with some of the Pharisees who are always fun to talk to, right, in the crowd in John 8. And he begins by saying something that's going to sound really familiar. I am the light of the world. Hmm. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. That sounds an awful lot like the beginning of our book here doesn't it? And this kicks off this back and forth about whether Jesus actually is who he says he is, mainly with the Pharisees, which concludes with Jesus saying, when I'm lifted up, then you'll know who I am, who I am, right? That's a significant phrase there. Then you will know who I am, and that I am who I've said I am. I do nothing on my own. Not even Jesus does stuff on his own. I do nothing on my own. But you will, but I speak what the Father has taught me. He doesn't leave me alone. Catch this phrase. For I always do what pleases him. Does that sound a lot like this text? This is the Son of God's ministry on earth. Jesus came preaching and teaching the kingdom of God, speaking what the Father told him, applying the word of God, and nobody would listen to him until they saw this. And then for some of them, it made sense. Until they saw his cross, 
And God does not leave his son alone in his work. He sends his spirit. First John, this is the message that we saw, heard, touched, looked at. Now we've passed it on to you. Jesus has laid down his life for you. Now you are called to lay down your life for your brothers and sisters and the people around you. That's how people will see the gospel. When they see this in your life, cruciform Christian living. That's how people will see the gospel. And you can't do that on your own. And God will not leave you alone in that. He answers your prayer when you ask for help. As you do what pleases him and walk as Jesus walked, he sends his spirit to give you the power to make his word flesh, to become the book. That's how this works. You become the book. That doesn't earn our salvation, but it does please our Father. So if we continue to look at this social test for the reality of Christian profession, we have two verses left, the abiding acts. Now look at the end of our text in verses 23 and 24. This is his commandment, that we believe in the name of the Son, Jesus, his Son, Jesus Christ, and we love one another just as he's commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him, and by this we know he abides in us, by the Spirit whom he's given us. What this text is essentially saying is right belief in Jesus, orthodoxy, and right love for one another, orthopraxy, are inextricably linked together if you're a follower of Jesus. One saves, right belief, And one inexorably comes from salvation, orthopraxy. So let's click back up to our menus and see how this works, right? We have today's text. It goes back up to verse 18. Let us not love with word or tongue. Don't just have meetings about this. Do it. In deed and in truth. Then we click back up to verse 10. By this it's evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever doesn't practice righteousness is not from God, and the one who doesn't love his brother isn't either. Right belief in Jesus and practical love for one another are inextricably linked to each other, though they're not the same thing. So I want to come back to John 8 again. The story there, Jesus keeps preaching to the crowd, and some of them believe in him, and some of them want to kill him. You know, two kind of different responses. You're the Savior. Let's murder him. Those are the two responses. And Jesus says, if God was your father, if you really believed in me, you would love me. Right? Why can't they believe in him? He says, because you belong to your father, the devil, and he is a murderer and a liar, and whoever belongs to God will hear what God has to say, and those who don't listen to Jesus is because they don't belong to God. It's the same thing going on in this text. As First John teaches us, watch out for the deceivers, the antichrists, the false prophets, next week, or two, whatever, next passage. They're liars. They claim to know God. But look at how they live. They're hating their brothers when God says, love one another. By this we know. By this we know. Jesus laid down his life for us. By this we know. We keep God's commands to lay down our lives for other people. And the only way to do that, that kind of supernatural living, is with supernatural power. By this we know that the Spirit is in us because we can live this way.
There's this mutual abiding going on. Believers abide or dwell or remain in God, and God abides or remains and dwells in his people. And you can see both of those things in the activities and the words of the people who are the believers. That God is there and they are with God. And the Spirit is evidence and guarantee of that new life. The Spirit is evidence and guarantee of that new life. He's the motive power to do the love command. He's the one who directs and translates the prayers that we make as requests for help. And he's the guarantee, Ephesians 1 says. He's like the, the engagement ring promising the wedding to come. That God is going to be with us and we will be with him and be his people and he will be our God. The Spirit abides in us and you can see it by what you do. So here's where this text, I think, is pointing us. Show that you are children of God by loving one another by his Spirit. That is in you through God's work in Christ. I managed to string a lot of prepositional phrases together because I was feeling like Paul when I wrote this. Show you are children of God by loving one another by his Spirit. That is in you through God's work in Christ. By this, you will have assurance of your salvation. By this, you can make assessment of the people who are teaching you. Do they follow this text? And by this, you can enjoy the God-given spirit as your assurance of salvation that's founded not in your orthodoxy and not in your orthopraxy. What is your salvation founded on? Again, who is your advocate? Jesus Christ. So let's come back to the same question we asked at the end of last week's text, since this text is just basically spelling out what last week's text looks like. When a brother or sister in Christ, when another Christian has a need and asks for help, whose job is it? Thank you. We're going to try that again, though. Stop, stop being Presbyterians for just a second, and you can respond to me. When someone else in the church needs help, whose job is it? Mine. Thank you. Yes. So we are called to become the book. To become the book. We're to know the abiding power of the Spirit as we love one another. We're to know the abiding power of the Spirit as we walk like Christ. We're to know the power of the Spirit as we love one another. So look around. I ask you to do this every now and then, and I always mean it. Look around. This is the place where the love of Christ is to be most fully on display of anywhere in the city of Bloomington. It should be showing up here. Right? Because we promise, just like we did this morning, I'm the first responder, I'm on the first engine, out of the firehouse when somebody gets the call. It's my job. It's your job. When I have a brother or sister who is in one of those four broken areas of life that sin breaks, when, I have, when we see someone who has a physical or creational need, that's our job. When we see someone who has a relational or a social need, that's our job. When we see someone who's broken inside and has a psychological, in the best sense of the word, an internal identity need, that's our job. When we see someone who has a broken relationship with God and needs theological application of the word of God, that's our job. That's what's supposed to be in our first responder bag, is stuff to deal with this, along with a cushion to get down on our knees and pray and pray and pray and ask for help, because we can't do it on our own. So that is your commission from this text. 
And it is not a commission for this week. It is a commission for life on earth as a Christian. Become the book. Let's pray. By this, we will know that we're of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. Believing in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and loving one another, just as he commanded us. Help us to become this book through the spirit whom you have given us. Help us do it in ordinary, everyday life with one another. In Christ's name, amen.